handheld communicators and doors that opened by themselves. These are some of the objects that the original producers of Star Trek used to portray the future. Today we have portable cell phones, automatic doors, and many new developments that were not even dreamed of in the early science fiction. In the Western world, we are daily dependent upon a plethora of embedded computers that surround us. Digital alarms, computerized kitchen appliances, processors that control our cars, our heating and ventilation systems, cell phones, and of course, personal computers. We live in a digital age in which it has become commonplace to communicate rapidly over vast networks and routinely, routinely visit websites from distant places. Computer technology has brought us dramatic changes to the factory floors, to offices, to classrooms, and homes. Does the ancient Christian faith still have anything to say to a fast-paced modern world shaped by such technology? Tertullian, a father of early Christian literature, once posed the question, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? When it comes to computer technology, we might as well ask, what does Silicon Valley have to do with Jerusalem? In a nutshell, what do bytes have to do with Christian belief? This, my friends, is a quote from Derek Schumann's book, Shaping a Digital World, Faith, Culture, and Computer Technology. Today, Schumann's going to join me to talk about his books, Computer Vision, Robot Rights, Artificial Intelligence, and the Christian faith. Schumann is a professor of computer science at Calvin University and previously worked in the industry as an engineer. He has a forthcoming book, The Christian Field Guide to Technology for Engineers and Designers. Welcome to the Dolores Project. Let's start the show. Well, thank you, Derek, for joining us. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's uh, great to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Um, I appreciate uh, being asked on. So, Derek, as normally, we uh, we ask a little bit about the, the person behind the scholarship. So just tell us a little bit about yourself. It doesn't have to be related to pedigree, just whatever makes uh, you you as a person, um, whatever you want to share with us. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said it doesn't have to do with pedigree, because that would be a short intro. But uh, if... Uh, Basically, I'm someone who grew up in, during the personal computer uh, revolution, you know, in the 1980s. I'm dating myself somewhat. Um, I, uh, I, I cut my teeth on some of the first microcomputers that were out there. Uh, some of your older listeners may recall the Timex Sinclair ZX81, you know, and the, the Commodore products at the time and the early IBM PCs and Apple computers. Um, so that was that was my world as a teenager, as these these new devices began to um, change the world around us and uh, captured my imagination. And um, 
I was also into electronics in general, and so just the whole world of technology uh, I found fascinating. I, uh, I was a ham radio operator as well at the time, and uh, just delighted in all things technical. Went on to study, as you mentioned, electrical engineering. Um, and initially, before I went back to grad school, I worked for almost a decade um, in industry, uh, actually designing uh, robot motion controllers uh, for um, uh, motion control, servo control of, uh, of robot um, motors and doing doing the motion control and so on. And, uh, um, uh, and after, I guess, a couple of years of doing that, I, uh, I got a little bit restless wondering about how to connect my faith and my work as an engineer. Um, and, uh, and I remember clearly sitting in a cubicle farm thinking about that, you know, how does, how does my faith, which was very important to me at the time, how does that really connect to my everyday on the ground work as an engineer? And that was the beginning of a of a journey of sorts where I, uh, I continue to read and think about that. And uh, eventually it became my job to be able to articulate and write about that uh, as a Christian college professor and, uh, and was really appreciative of learning from colleagues in philosophy and theology and having opportunity to grow as a Christian scholar. And, uh, and then, yeah, most recently, most of my focus has been going to, to writing and thinking about that topic uh, in addition to my my regular teaching duties here at Calvin. Yeah, it's it's not a a typical um, connection there between some somebody of faith um, in computer science writing and thinking about that for people of faith, and and so mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Um, and and Derek, so just tell us a little bit about um, you've also written some articles on robotics, and you know. You have a practical understanding of it, but also uh, the philosophical side of it and in design mm-hmm. and those things. And so uh, tell us what brought you into um, thinking about the robot rights and uh, sex robots and all these things. What what led you mm-hmm. into those discussions? Well, my, my PhD research was actually, uh, after I had been in industry, I, I felt a call to teaching and, and uh, needed to go back to grad school to get... Um, to get my PhD and my area of research for my PhD was actually in the area of uh, robot vision, uh, visual servoing to be specific. specific. Um, and, uh, and so I was, I was uh, thinking about robots from a technical perspective and also thinking at that time already, you know, what kind of research do I want to do? Um, because the research that you do and the problems that you solve, even in academia, have uh, practical implications, um, mm. practical applications. And, um, and so it began sort of, uh, I began thinking more and more about some of the ethical issues associated with robotics and how they were being used. Um, my work intersected computer vision as well. And so that was at a time when computer vision was, was um, beginning to be used more and more uh, with all of those privacy issues and stuff that are associated with it. And so I began thinking already then about that. And, um, uh, and then when I began teaching, um, I began doing a little bit of research as well, but I began to think more and more about some of those ethical issues. Um, and, uh, and robotics in particular, I think comes with a whole bunch of, uh, pitfalls and philosophical presuppositions, mm-hmm. um, as I'm sure the listeners on your podcast have heard, um, from you and other speakers. 
And, uh, and I found the area fascinating uh, because it combines a lot of the issues of faith and technology, but with some very specific um, uh, philosophical issues that come into play, um, you know, and enduring questions like, what does it mean to be human? Mm-hmm. And how are we distinct from, uh, from robots and from artificial intelligence um, devices and so on. And so th- those are really interesting, enduring questions that come up. And there are questions that my students found fascinating to discuss as well. Uh, and so uh, and so some of that s- sort of sparks some of the initial writing uh, that I did. Um, I haven't, uh, I- I've written on a wide variety of technology topics. So I've written a little bit about, about robotics um, and a few articles about it. Um, uh, but much of my writing has been more generally about faith and technology. But the the issue of robotics is is a particularly fascinating area because it, it brings out a lot of, like I said, enduring questions and and uh, philosophical issues that are that are fascinating to to engage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even uh, recently, that question of what does it mean to be human? Mm-hmm. You know, the um, this you said the philosophical assumptions behind that and presuppositions. It's so loaded. Um, and there's there's a writer. His name's Jacob Turner. He's a barrister in London, and mm-hmm. in the opening of his book on on robotic regulation and, and rules, uh, he talks about well, he quotes and says that you know you can't really understand this issue without understanding faith and history. Mm-hmm. And I thought that I missed that when I was first reading his book, but that seems to be the most foundational truth in this discussion that I've, that I've missed is that Hmm. it's, it is about faith. And I I like to say, it's just, it's a matter of how honest you are. Are Mm -hmm. you honest about your presuppositions? Are you, are you honest about what you believe separates us, as you say, from, from animals? And, and for a lot of people, there's, those distinctions are blurred. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and and as you say, in your book, you know, you, you kind of line out, uh, in shaping a digital world, that there are these distinction and categories of ways that we think about this from a reform perspective in your tradition, um, mm-hmm. and for, in mine as well, is that you know God kind of creates, He does create, He orders things to be a certain way, um, mm-hmm. and we we kind of fall into that category. You know, a, an acorn doesn't become a different type of tree mm-hmm. if it's put in the right conditions; it becomes a certain type of tree and it doesn't change without interference. But with robotics, it's a little bit different, right? So, I mean, as a computer scientist, what are some of the issues that you're concerned about going forward? Um, especially as you've written about how technology is value laden, that there's embedded technology and, and, and our, uh, embedded, um, values in certain pieces of mm-hmm. technology. Uh, and so what are some things that you see that concern you? Uh, and then we'll talk about things that you're hopeful about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that, that that's a loaded question, but yeah, that there, there's a lot of truth there. I think, um, you know, when I was in engineering school, um, there wasn't a lot of talk about the presuppositions, the philosophical presuppositions of, of our work, right? You know, what mm-hmm. is technology and what does it mean to be human and what does responsible technology look like? I think when I went in engineering school, there already was some talk about sustainability and issues like that. Um, 
But there wasn't, aside from that, there wasn't a whole lot of explicit discussion uh, about some of the um, underlying assumptions. Um, and in fact, one of the underlying assumption was that, um, that I only detected later was that the worldview that was sort of implicit was one that sort of sees the world as a mechanism to be mm -hmm. manipulated, right? And yeah. so the engineering tools and techniques are designed to efficiently control processes uh, in a way that is desirable. And I think that's one of the presuppositions behind um, a lot of technical work. And unfortunately, that, that sort of can create a kind of tunnel vision uh, for people working in that field, right? Um, you mentioned that, um, you know, an acorn produces a certain kind of tree that in creation, God sort of created things each according to their kind. And we see already in, you know, the biblical story in the book of Genesis, how the human family is created in a way that's distinct from the rest of the non-human creation. We're still part of the earth, right? I mean, uh, mm -hmm. I think the story about Adam being made out of the stuff of the earth, you know, plus the breath of God, you know, the spirit of God, um, you know, shows that we're, we're, we're part of creation, but there's also something distinct also in terms of uh, how we were created and uh, and the Bible says explicitly we were made in the image of God, which uh, which includes a whole host of uh, implications. And so um, so yeah, I think people who work with robotics, um, uh, at least the you know uh, from what I've seen, and I've been to robotic conferences and so on, tend to shy away from the philosophical questions. Uh, but what what you see something you know how you see something. Um, and what you presuppose it to be and how you presuppose what it means to be human have implications for how you see how those things ought to be appropriately and responsibly used. Um, and and uh, in, in, in the reform tradition, we're, we, we like to talk about presuppositions and about philosophical foundations. And um, I think it's one of the strengths of our tradition. We see uh, that all of life is religious, and so a lot of the work that roboticists do, and engineers, is uh, is a kind of religious work, right? It's mm -hmm. sort of based on a certain view of the world about uh, a certain view of life and about what's worthwhile and what's important, and uh, and yeah, in that sense, all of life is religious. Uh, from a reform perspective, we talk about you know life is lived coram deo, right? Before the face of God, everything we do is done before the face of God. And we do these things as a matter of obedience or disobedience. And that's related to that um, other issue you rose about, you know, things being value laden, you know, um, that all of the technology that we create, they're not just neutral tools, right? They're, there's a certain vision that animates their very creation, right? There are certain value laden decisions that are made about how we build these things and what features are included and which features are not included. Um, and, and these technologies, of course, when they're, when they're used, change the way that we think and relate and work in the world. And so in all kinds of multifaceted ways, they're, they're not neutral. They change mm -hmm. things. And so, um, and so I, I, I think that's one way in which we can see all of life as being religious. And the question is, you know, what, what's a responsible way for a roboticist um, to... Uh, to use those possibilities in creation in such a way that uh, it leads to increased flourishing and uh, avoids the pitfalls of, of, uh, of, of hubris as well. And, um, 
and uh, and is done in a way that I think is responsible and obedient to 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 our calling. So, um, so the, yeah, those are some of the things we talk about uh, as uh, as computer scientists at Calvin. Um, these are some of the challenges that we have. We have these rich creational possibilities, things like robots and AI. The question is, you know, uh, how are we going to direct those things? How are we going to use them in ways that uh, uh, show love to our neighbor and serve the Lord uh, mm-hmm. in an obedient way? Yeah, I think that's important. Um, and, and so, Derek, do you have any particular ideas about how we do that mm-hmm. as far as it relates to, um, you know, Christian scientists and Christian scholars? joining other um, scientists in in the field of robotics or computer science uh, even philosophy to to dialogue about these things you know what what would you say is our role in participating in those discussions you know should we should we or should we not you know yeah yeah and and i'm glad to say that um you know there's a lot of professional organizations that have begun to become more aware of the ethical issues um, the IEEE, um, mm-hmm. uh, the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers, and the ACM, Association of Computing Machinery, have codes of ethics. The IEEE, Robotics and Automation Society, um, has subgroups within it that are interested in questions of robo-ethics, uh, which is a whole distinct mm-hmm. field now. Um, and so the the conversation has already begun. And I think as Christians, we we need to join those conversations. And I think that um, that can even be fruitful when we're working alongside people who have different presuppositions than we do, um, because oftentimes we can find common cause um, to work together towards good outcomes uh, for um, for the benefit, for the common good. And uh, so yeah. we need to look for those opportunities, even though our presuppositions and some of our starting points might be very different. Um, as a Christian in my, in my book, Shaping a Digital World, and in, in the um, new book that will be coming out, we, we identify a set of norms, so design norms that, uh, that, that we, we have found helpful. Um, talk about me and, and uh, my co-authors in the most recent book. Uh, and these norms uh, are, are sort of, they come out of Christian philosophy and out of um, Christian thinking. Um, and, uh, and, and there's about a half a dozen, six, seven, eight of them that, uh, uh, that we identify as being sort of helpful guidelines for thinking about technology in general, and, and they can be applied to robotics as well. Um, I can quickly go over them. The, the one norm is cultural yeah. appropriateness. So that has to do with making sure that the technology relieves burdens while not um, interfering with, you know, culturally uh, what's important uh, in a particular uh, area. And so I, I, I think, uh, um, you know, relieving burdens while preserving what is good, essentially. And so the, the kinds of technologies that are appropriate for the boardroom may not be appropriate for, you know, a worship service. Um, and, uh, you know, an example that I give um, and, and that I have given in the past is, you know, the, the, the notion of um, um, introducing new technologies into majority world countries in some cases. And so an example is uh, the grinding of corn in Tanzania. This is an example I read about where a bunch of consultants came in and they recommended, you know, introducing electric grinders to, to, to everyone to automate the entire processing of the harvest in minutes. 
And, uh, and what they found later on is that this, this technology resulted in the destruction of social groupings and interactions that were, you know, um, mm -hmm. important in that culture um, and the rituals associated with harvest and so on. And so out of respect for, for a cultural norm, what they did is they, they, they returned and they essentially um, replaced those, those electric grinders with hand grinders. So they, they were able to reduce the strain of, uh, of, the, of the task while maintaining some of the social rituals that were associated with it. So cultural appropriateness, I think, is, is, is an area that thinks carefully about how introducing technology impacts the, the surrounding culture. There's a norm of transparency. That's another one uh, that we talk about, and that has to do with providing clear and honest information, uh, you know, not bearing false witness. Um, and I think, you know, when it comes to AI systems, for instance, you know, being clear about uh, how and for what purpose it's being deployed, how the data is being used, um, you know, sort of uh, disclosing how your data is being collected. Um, I also think, you know, when you're dealing with robots and AI, that they should not pretend to be human. You know, it should be clear that you're dealing with an AI um, rather than a real person. Um, and I think that'll become more important as, as some of those technologies become more and more um, uh, uh, similar to human voices and forms and so on, where, where we can be tricked into thinking that we're actually dealing with a human. There's a norm of, um, there's a social norm. It has to do with how we relate to other people. Um, and of course, you know, social robotics is a whole area where, where we think about you know, what, what are appropriate relationships between people and robots um, and, and, and what does that look like? There's a stewardship norm. And I think this has to do with economic questions, environmental questions, human resources. You know, when we're looking at automation, we're thinking also about job losses and, and, and the impact on people. Um, there's a norm of delightful harmony. That norm has to do with aesthetics, form and function. Um, automation replacing, uh, not replacing, but necessarily assisting human workers, you know, tools that are satisfying and pleasing to use. Uh, that, that's all part of that, that norm of delightful harmony. There's a norm of justice. I mean, that's a fundamental biblical norm, right? Uh, Micah 6 verse 8, you know, we need to mm -hmm. act justly. And uh, technology can be, um, can promote injustice or, or further justice, depending on how it's, how it's, how it's designed and, and implemented. Um, everything needs to be giving its rightful due. There's the norm of caring, which has to do with showing love and care for our neighbor. Um, and I, I think under that norm, you might ask questions like, should we be looking at child minding robots and elder care robots? Is that an appropriate function to be handing off to robots? And then the final norm um, that we talk about in our books and which I write about in shaping a digital world is the trust norm. And the trust norm has to do with dependability. You know, can you rely on, on a piece of technology, especially ones on which human, you know, are, which are critical systems on which humans depend, but then trust also has to do with ultimately where we place our trust, right. And uh, hmm. avoiding the pitfall of, uh, of idolatry when it comes to technology. So, so those are all, um, those are all sort of helpful norms. They don't really give you a magic answer as to how to solve a particular technical dilemma, but they, they, they hopefully allow engineers and technologists to zoom out 
and think more holistically, uh, you know, about the breadth of creation and the kinds of things that come into play when we're actually working with technology, right? And and the norms mm -hmm. as a whole are sort of guided by, you know, our call to love our neighbor as ourselves and to care for the earth and its creatures. Um, so, um, so yeah, those are all the normative things. And then I would quickly add that the posture, a good posture for engineers, Christian engineers, is one of mm -hmm. humility. Because we don't always know uh, what the, you know, impacts are going to be uh, uh, of our technical activities. We, we, we aren't able to perfectly see into the future. We don't know all the unintended effects that will come. And so we need to have our antenna up when we're, when we're working with new technology, um, mm. you know, aware that things could turn out different than what we thought. Um, and that just has to do with human finitude, right? Uh, we don't know everything. And, uh, and so we have to, we have to, uh, we have to we have to exercise a bit of humility rather than hubris uh, when it comes to uh, some of these activities. So, so that's just a brief summary of some of these guidelines that that I think generally are helpful when working with uh, as Christians in the field of technology. No, I I totally agree, uh, and I was thinking that as I was reading through your book that, you know, I think typically when you read these you know moral statements by you know I all these others that have across the world right, that have made these mm -hmm. moral standards is that, you know, one, we, we kind of want a collective outcome, a good to come out of this. We, we don't want, you know, Skynet to come out of <laughs> yeah. our creations, right? Nobody, nobody is, is desiring that. Um, you know, we, we want people to be protected, not harmed. Um, we kind of have this social collective thinking about it. Now, I think what's also very important, what you said, Derek, that's sometimes missing from the Christian perspective is that we want to value other cultures. And I really appreciated that you, you know, even the illustration that you gave is that we, we don't want to just create technology from a Western perspective mm -hmm. and then go somewhere to an indigenous culture and say, now this is what you do. This is how you, you farm. Um, and now we've done that in the past. Um, and so we don't want to repeat the sins of our fathers, so to speak, to use language of the New Testament. Um, we we want to consider other cultures that there is a wisdom to the way that they live, and they may not share our perspective of ethics, but that doesn't mean we um, trump over them. And I think you see that a lot in technology, especially with robotics. There seems to be just a handful of perspectives and ideals that are built into these systems. And like you said, the mechanistic view of the world um, has its own problems, right? Mm -hmm. And it has its own ends. Um, but then we're also denying that there's substantial form to humans, but also a theological end. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's also dangerous. Um, and so I think like you're right humility in approaching these conversations i think is it could be a very distinctive mark of christian scholarship or it should be at least mm -hmm. in my perspective that we we understand that you know sometimes plans go awry and what was created out of good intentions um, could be used for evil um, and so yeah that's it's really interesting and, and you had a quote in there early on um that really struck me and it kind of relates to some of the things that i've written about and thought about 
So, you know, we shape technology and then it shapes us. And I believe yeah. that's from Culkin. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. He, he was summarizing Marshall McLuhan, right? These, these mm -hmm. great media ecologists who I think were very prophetic, right? Some of these guys were writing almost very. 50 years ago, but mm -hmm. they were, they were basically telling us um, early on that we needed to, we needed to be aware that our, our technology had a bias, that it was value laden, that the, the medium itself has a message, right? Uh, to, mm -hmm. to, to use the words of Marshall McLuhan. And uh, I think we see that more than ever around us with, with some of the digital tools that have, uh, uh, that have um, entered our lives more recently. Um, they're not neutral. They change things in some really profound ways um, to be sure. And, and I think we also have to be careful not to um, dismiss out of hand um, new possibilities uh, in technology. You know, um, I think a balanced sort of biblical view and you'll find my book, Shaping a Digital World, basically the chapters themselves are laid out according to the biblical story, creation, fall, mm -hmm. redemption, restoration. And, uh, and so I think a, a Christian in technology will always um, never discount out of hand new technologies, right? The, the, the possibilities in creation are not things that we ought to, uh, that we ought to uh, uh, dismiss, um, despite the fact that, you know, there are... Um, you know, distortions due to sin in terms of how these things are used. Um, if there are possibilities in creation, there must be good ways to use them that honor God. And so the field of robotics, for instance, um, we should be asking ourselves, you know, if there is the possibility for building automated systems in creation, then how do we use it in a way that honors God? And, uh, mm -hmm. And, and, and some of the ways that immediately come to mind is, you know, working on tasks that are dull, dangerous, and dirty are the ones that are often listed, right? And I, I, I would add to that quickly as well, you know, medical technology. Um, and so tasks that are dull, dangerous, and dirty, by automating some of those things, we can actually really show love to our neighbor. Um, we can show love um, by taking away tasks that are dehumanizing. Right. And, and actually relegating those to machines. Um, and um, and I think generally when we're looking at automation, I found three questions are kind of helpful, you know, um, kind of asking, you know, is this an area where automation is appropriate? You know, and that would be things like dull, dangerous work. Um, are, are there some is this an area of work where we need some combination of humans and automation? You know, there, there's a whole field of cobots. Um, mm -hmm. I know Fred Brooks, who's a famous computer scientist, once wrote about, uh, you know, we need to stop obsessing about AI and start thinking about IA. And what he meant by that mm -hmm. is intelligence amplification, right? Having machines work together with people. And, uh, and, and, and you can see um, areas where that would be really fruitful. You know, um, caregiving uh, robots, I would have something that I, I would have an issue with. Um, I'm very sympathetic to the writing of people like Sherry Turkle. Uh, but, mm -hmm. um, but what about a robot that helps with the heavy lifting that caregivers often have to do, right? Having a, having a, a machine that can help with, uh, with those heavy tasks, those backbreaking tasks, but still having a human there um, to, to, to work alongside someone. Um, I think that those are examples of uh, search and rescue, having a machine do lots and lots of, um, you know, long hours uh, searching 
well, a human helps guide the overall search process, right? Um, there's lots of examples, I think, where that can be, be fruitful. And then finally, I think there's places where automation is totally inappropriate. And this is where perhaps some, some, some uh, where people will disagree and where even Christians might, might, uh, might have different uh, thoughts on this. But, you know, I, I, I think of tasks, um, you know, like, uh, like uh, child care, elder care, um, I think I would have, I, I have grave concerns about, um, lethal autonomous robots, uh, which have no human in the loop that make life and death decisions. Um, I think, I think these are all things where, um, you know, totally automating some of these things would be, uh, uh, not responsible. So, so thinking right up front, you know, how do we use technology in a normative way, you know, looking through the lens of those norms, looking through the, the general call to love our neighbor, uh, where can we use automation in a way that, that can be really fruitful? And I, I can give one other example. I, uh, early on when I was uh, setting up a research program after I got my first teaching job, I was thinking about how can I use computer vision and automation in a way that's, that's normative, right? How, you know, I talked in my classroom all the time with my students about you know, normative technology and so on. How do I model that in my own research? And I actually ended up working for several years on a problem of visually sorting recyclable goods. I went down to our local um, recycling uh, facility and I noticed that there were still people sorting recyclable goods by hand uh, on a large mm -hmm. conveyor belt. Now, some of it was automated, but there were some materials. Um, I think at the time, polycoat uh, containers was one of the materials that they couldn't automate automatically sort. So people were standing there, you know, for eight hour shifts, you know, grabbing these materials off this fast moving conveyor belt of, of, of recycled goods and, and waste. And, um, and I thought there's got to be a better way to automate this. And so we, we wrote a couple papers um, on, you know, using certain visual characteristics of those uh, of those particular goods. To, to, to have a system that could, you know, in real time or near real time, um, be able to classify them and be able to identify them for the sake of recycling. And so that, that mm -hmm. seemed to me like a really, you know, fruitful application of some of those technologies. I'd be curious to know, Derek, um, the perspective of the worker in that situation. Mm -hmm. Did they feel... Did they feel threatened by what you're doing or did they feel relieved? That's a really good question. Um, and unfortunately, I didn't have time to sit and talk with the workers. They were too occupied <laughs> with, mm -hmm. uh, with their tasks. <laughs> and um, and I, 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 I think that's a really, really good question. I, it seemed to me that the kind of task that it was was largely dehumanizing. Um, you know, to, 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 to be able to sit there and have to rapidly classify goods that are, you know, flying by at whatever it was, a meter per second or whatever the speed of the belt was, um, you know, for hours on end is not something that humans are designed to do well, uh, I don't think. I, I don't think it makes, makes good use of human strengths. Um, and so... Um, but I think that's a legitimate question, right? I mean, uh, when you think about automation, and I think one of the cases that I, I bring up with my students is, is uh, autonomous vehicles, right? If you look at, you know, what is the, the main sort of uh, most popular common job for an American male? It's a truck driver, right? And of course, there's, mm -hmm. there's drivers for delivery vehicles and 
and uh, taxi drivers and all those sorts of things too. And so the question becomes, you know, if we can build an autonomous vehicle, what happens to all those people who make their living, you know, driving vehicles? And uh, and that's not a not a trivial thing. You know, what does it mean to love them when we're when we're working mm -hmm. on automation? And uh, and is there ways that we can uh, um, we can do that in a thoughtful way as some of this automation comes online? And I think some economists have already. Um, kind of, you know, rung the alarm to kind of say, you know, our, some of our technology is gotten, getting to the point where the amount of jobs that are created are, are fewer than the jobs that are displaced. You know, if, you, if mm -hmm. you look largely through the 20th century, a lot of, you know, if you, if you read some of these books, The Race Against the Machine and The Rise of the Robots and uh, The End of Work mm -hmm. and The Second Machine Age, um, oh, there's been a flurry of books about the end of work and and you know what people noticed through the 20th century was that work largely um that was automated uh, was more than offset by new jobs right um mm -hmm. when people stopped making uh horse uh, hor uh, uh carriages for for horses then the automotive industry sort of took off and and, and hired lots of people um you know a lot of these industries that displaced older ones um uh, more than replace the jobs that were displaced. But more recently, you know, we're seeing white collar workers being put out of work. The, the example of, uh, you know, autonomous vehicles is going to displace millions of people if, uh, if that becomes mainstream. And so the question becomes, what do we do about that, right? Um, and, and, and a lot of money and power gets concentrated in, in fewer and fewer hands. So there's economic and justice implications for some of those things. So, um, uh, there's a book uh, called The Second Machine Age in, in, in particular, where, where they talk about the, the bounty and the spread, right? You know, all this automation mm -hmm. will, will produce lots and lots of stuff and it'll be cheap and, and, and uh, ubiquitous. But the, the, the sort of gap between the haves and the haves nots will, will sort of increase. And so, um, mm -hmm. so we need to be thoughtful about that. Um, and some of the solutions are not trivial either. You know, some people talk about, you know, um, having a basic income for everybody. Um, but the question is, is, you know, we need more than money. We need, we need meaningful mm -hmm. work. That's part of, you know, that's in Genesis too, right? We were created to yeah. uh, work was, was part of uh, God's plan for human beings right from the beginning. And so, um, um, so I think we need to be, um, working together. And I think we need more than engineers to make these decisions. We need economists. We need the help of social scientists. We need philosophers, theologians. We need people from a vast sort of array of disciplines and, and training and backgrounds to, to be thinking of thoughtfully about, you know, how do we, how do we proceed? Um, just because we can do something, you know, doesn't mean we, we ought to do it. And so, um, mm -hmm. So some of these norms will be helpful. Um, I think uh, there's a few other questions that um, that I found helpful as well. I've, I've shared these with my students and with others. Uh, Neil Postman had something called six questions to ask about technology. <laughs> and, uh, and I've sort of adapted them to, um, to automation and robotics. And so it goes something like this. I'll quickly list them. Um, what is the problem to which this form of automation is a solution is a good question to ask. 
And what is the problem it's solving? And then a, a, an important question that follows on that is whose problem is automation solving? Um, that's an important question as well. And then third, you know, what problems will automation create even as it solves a problem? So what are the new problems that are going to emerge? And then four, what people or institutions will be hurt by automation? And, and you know, we've, we've hinted at that already with autonomous vehicles and so on. And then five, what changes in language are being forced by automation? Um, that's an interesting one. How do we change the way we talk about robots and about automation? And then six, what sort of people and institutions gain special economic and political power through automation? That's an interesting question, right? Mm -hmm. So, so all of those questions, if you if you want to think of it this way, go back to the issue that technology is not neutral, because some people mm -hmm. gain power and others don't. Some people are hurt and others benefit. Um, some people have their problems solved and other people have new problems introduced into their life. Um, it's it's the it's the nature of technology. But asking these questions, I think, is one helpful way of, uh, of, of trying to get at what some of those impacts are going to be so that we can move forward thoughtfully. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Postman's work is very prophetic in a lot of ways. Oh yeah. It, yeah. It, it's always strange to read about somebody writing in the eighties that could have been written this year, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. But yeah, tremendous insight, but yeah. you know, there, I think those are great examples and questions we need to ask. Um, but I think also there's a layer of autonomy that's like, I think if Postman were here today, he might reorient towards not just automation, but how these systems are using autonomous decision-making, mm -hmm. not necessarily in the sense of, you know, this is, um, this AI system is, is thinking quote unquote, like a human, which was the original question. Um, and didn't turn out like we understand ontologically, there's a difference between the machine and the human. And I think that's, that's what people are finding out without making that metaphysical leap, so to speak. And so there's this shift that I've noticed, which is there's a lot of correlations between Christian complementarian thinking and modern metaphysics about we're in a, in a sense kind of going back to Aristotle because we've we've kind of made our way um you know we we've kind of explored every avenue that we could think about with material and immaterial states and we're like well and they're not nobody's saying this but it's like Aristotle's had his revenge so to speak he's coming back and um and people don't even realize it but I, I think there's there's hope in that regard like I, I think you know, if you if you really think about what the machine is, the distinction distinction between machine and human, you have to say there's some form, hmm. a matter that's different, you know, and and that's not because we've proven it right or wrong, so to speak, but that scientists are figuring this out, and it's you know everything that's kind of gone against that in the Western tradition from Descartes that's been fighting against this perspective that there's a prime mover and he said to order the things and, and things go in accordance to an order. Um, it seems to hold pretty true. Yeah. And, um, you know, Einstein was frustrated by that. The universe was expanding. Um, 
that's not what people thought. And, and I think with machines as well, I think they will surprise us again when in the new fourth industrial age or whatever it is, uh, when we tend to cross more boundaries than we thought we would. Um, and what I mean by that is, as you speak about the boundaries between companionship and friendship, um, there's already an issue, you know, where we have lower fertility rates and less people having kids. And then we have less kids to take care of us, but then we also have more elderly people. And so it's an issue of care for them as well. How do we take care of them? And, and that's why Japan's perspective is so different than ours is they're, they're trying to, to meet a societal need. Um, and so I, I think it's helpful sometimes too, to kind of take a step back, like you say, and see, you know, what is the collective good of what we're trying to accomplish? Um, and it doesn't matter if we're atheists or theists, so to speak in that regard, but how can we cause the most good? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. I think we have a common, common understanding of what good is, is, you know, well, even, you know, even if there are some disagreements about what constitutes the good, we're, 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 we're living in the same creation. And the thing about God's creation is that it, it, it kind of, it's kind of like rubber bands. If you go against creational norms, it has a way of pushing back, you know, that there, there's always consequences. Um, when we go against God's norms, you know, you can, um, you can ignore justice for a time. Mm-hmm. But eventually, you know, the chickens come home to roost, for instance, right? Or you can, you can, uh, you can ignore, you know, normative social relations with your with your neighbors or your family or your friends. But eventually, you're going to suffer the consequences mm-hmm. of that. You can ignore stewardship and pollute our air and water, and eventually, that will come back, um, you know, with consequences. And so, I think one of the ways that Christians can work with people in the public square is to identify some of these things, right? And, 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 uh, and, and basically point to creation itself, uh, you know, whether or not they acknowledge God, uh, we're, we're standing in the same creation that God formed with his laws and his norms. And, and eventually, you know, these things will, uh, will, will, will show themselves uh, if we go against his norms. And we're seeing some of those consequences already, right? We're seeing issues in social networking, uh, we're seeing issues in uh, in the environment. Uh, we're seeing issues in uh, in economics and and, and politics. Um, all of these things, you know, result from um, straying from from God's norms for our lives and from loving our neighbor uh, properly. And so, I, I think that's a helpful place to start uh, with people. And I think there's some voices that can be really helpful. I really appreciate, for instance, uh, the work of Sherry mm-hmm. Turkle. Um, to my knowledge, she's, she's, I think she had, uh, I just finished her biography, actually. Um, I'm hoping to write a review of it, uh, The Empathy yes. Diaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, her, she had a, a sort of a Jewish upbringing, but I, I'm not so, you know, I'm not sure where she's at right now. But her, her work, I think, is very insightful about, uh, you know, Alone Together in particular. Uh, part of that book actually deals with robot companionship. Mm-hmm. You know, and she talks about how a robot can promise friendship, but can only deliver performance, right? And she talks about, you know, caring machines. Is there such a thing, you know? Um, and how social robotics, robotics exploit the idea 
of using a robotic body to move people to relate to mm -hmm. machines just like they would other people. I think, I think the way we relate to some of these systems says more about us than it does about, about robots, Absolutely. Right? about who mm -hmm. we are. And so I, I think she's, she's a, she's a very helpful voice um, in thinking about what are some normative ways, not only in terms of robotic companionship, but also, um, you know, in terms of electronic communications and so on. The, the subtitle of her book alone together is why we expect more from technology and less mm -hmm. from each other. I think, uh, um, I found her work to be helpful and insightful as well. Have you, uh, there's another MIT person that, um, Kate Darling, have you read her book, the, the new breed? No, no. Um, have you, is that, is that a helpful resource? Have you found that a helpful resource? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Well, the way that, um, that's what's so challenging and helpful about it is that she says that we, we should look at robotics, social robotics and, and others as oh. the same way we might look at animals in our, our partnership with animals, um, and how oh. she kind of traces the history of how okay. we've used them in military and other, you know, therapeutic situations and, and how that can be a useful form for social robots. And, um, it's a, it's a very, okay. Yeah. I know Sherry Turkle actually does. Sherry Turkle also brings that up. You know, she talks about zoomorphism, right? She talks about mm -hmm. Ibo, you know, that this pet that was meant yeah. to provide companionship and the Pero seal that was provided for elderly folks. She's skeptical of this. You know, she calls it zoomorphism, you know, trying to build a machine that behaves like an animal. Um, I'm sympathetic to that too. I, um, you know, I, um, I, I probably can't get into all the details here, but I, I, um, when I talk to my students, and I have a bit of that in my book, Shaping a Digital World, I have these modal aspects of creation, right? You know, the, there's sort of numerical, there's um, biological, mm -hmm. there's social, there's cultural sort of aspects to creation. And these things are, are, um, um, are not reducible to each other. And if you look at a plant, a plant can, you know, a plant sort of exists in a, new, you know, in a, in a range of modalities that it can, it can inhabit and be a subject of. And animals have an expanded range uh, over top of plants. And of course, people can work over the whole range of these different aspects. But, you know, a machine is fundamentally numeric at its heart, right? It's, it's algorithmic and it's numeric. And so the question is, you know, are there certain modes of operating, um, you know, social modes, uh, justice, for instance, can, can these things be reduced to algorithms and can they be reduced to mathematical mm -hmm. equations? And, and, and my sort of, and I think this comes out of my reformed heritage, I, I would say that there are ways of being that are, you know, ontologically irreducible. Um, and so, you know, you, you can't, um, you can't implement um, a normative relationship with a being who's driven by mathematical equations. Um, it, it can mimic um, some of these things. It, it might even be able to fool uh, people um, or most of the people most of the time. But um, but our emotions, our, our 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 sense of right and wrong, our morality, um, our responsibility cannot be reduced to mm -hmm. algorithms. Um, 
um, the world can be understood um, more deeply in some ways, looking at its mathematical aspect. There's, there, there's a mathematical reality to everything, but not everything can be collapsed into mathematical mm-hmm. understandings and algorithmic, algorithmic ways of being. And so that, 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 that's the idea of um, uh, anti-reductionism, mm-hmm. right? This idea that, uh, and so if, if a robot fundamentally under the hood, so to speak, is, is algorithmic and mathematical, then some of these ways that we, we relate and interact as human beings um, I, I think can't be reduced solely to the mathematical um, sort of algorithmic domain. And I think Sherry Turkle um, uh, kind of intuits that, that, that there's something different between people yeah. and machines that, that will, will always be different. And I think part of it has to do with, uh, uh, with what I just described. So um, no, uh, that's also described briefly in my book, shaping a digital world. Some of my, my thoughts on that. Yeah. And I think that's the, normative way to think about it now is the resistance to conflate the machine and the human. And Mm. the question that I have is why, you know, why (laughs) you have to give me a reason why you think that it's no different. (laughs) You have to explain that. And, um, nobody wants to admit that it's religious. Um, you know, even, even a scholar, um, Dr. Lily Frank, as she asked me one time, or in a conference, she said, you know, all, all my students are Dutch. They're atheists, but they don't want to play God. They don't believe we should play God in the things that we make. And she asked, you know, why, why is that? And I was like, well, you know, from my perspective, I, I think that has to do with something that, you know, how we're made um, in the image and endowed with this mm-hmm. vision. And, uh, you know, so I just kind of left it there. But, you know, people notice that and there's this innate sense that we, we shouldn't do some things. We shouldn't create some mm-hmm. beings. Um, and that kind of goes back to Mary Shelley and these other yeah. forward thinking. The Frankenstein yeah, narrative. Yeah. Right. With <laughs> yeah. being careful with what we create. And I think that's no different with whether we're talking about AI or um, robots or whatever it is, is that you just need to be very careful about the things that we create and then take responsibility when we go too far. Mm-hmm. Um all right. Well, Derek, I've, I've taken a lot of your time. Um, I'd like for you to mention your current work and promote it and whatever you'd like to tell us about it. And um, we'll end there. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Um, I have a, a, a new book coming out. Uh, so Shaping a Digital World came out in t- 2013, and it's, it's largely targeted to people in computer science. It's a, We use it here at Calvin University as a book in our capstone course that that uh, perspectives on computing. Um, but most recently I've worked with two other co-authors and uh, written a book, as you, you mentioned the title, it's a Christian field guide to technology for engineers and designers. And that's intended to be uh, what we hope will be a helpful book for people who are working in the engineering profession, thinking about how to connect their faith to their work as an engineer. You know, it, it opens with, sort of talking about where technology comes from. You know, it's not just a rational process, but it's based on dreams. And, uh, you know, and then we, we do a bit of a, a walk through the biblical story and looking at it in terms of technology. And then the norms that I briefly talked about uh, earlier are, are kind of worked out in more detail for, for, for engineers. 
Um, we talk about technology in the future, sort of eschatological visions, you know, in science fiction and these sorts of things. There's a chapter on the history of technology, uh, which uh, which which helps us understand today uh, better, I think, and and where we where we where we're going. And then the final chapter is called "Letters to a Young Engineer," which uh, mm. which is my favorite chapter, and it's basically you know some letters exchanged between a a wise older professor and a recently graduated engineer. Mm. And um, and giving him some encouragement and advice uh, as he faces different challenges in in the workplace. Mm. So we're hoping this book will be uh, you know the, the, there isn't much out there like that. And so this is a book that's written specifically for engineers who are serious about their Christian faith and thinking about ways to connect the dots. And if I could teleport back to me <laughs> as a young engineer in the cubicle farm, you know, asking those same questions, I'd love to give. Mm. Uh, I'd love to give me a copy of that book to, to help me along the way. And we're hoping that it'll be a good encouragement and starting point for lots of fruitful conversation with people who find themselves working in, in the world of technology. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Um, I'm glad you guys have I've worked on that. It's, it is desperately needed. Mm. Um, we need many more publications from Christian scholars um, in this field were so far behind. Yeah. Um, so I want to encourage everybody to check it out and look into Derek's work and his research. Um, great writer, good thinker. And, and so I uh, just appreciate your time, Derek. And, and thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much, Joshua. Yeah. Take care. Thanks. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, make sure to follow me on Twitter and on my website uh, for all the projects that are going on, joshuakasmith.org. Uh, really appreciated this project and the time that each scholar gave. So I'll see you soon, and we'll be back with more scholars and more jokes and thoughts about robots. Take care. <laughs>